it's terrifying for most people to step into this. That's why it's great if a group of people can step into it together. Our featured speaker today understands innovation is a function of people, not ideas. He has worked with many of the most innovative companies in the world, including technology giant Salesforce, where he spent four years building and managing the company's first coaching practice. After helping over 150 teams and leaders across the globe wake up to their potential and do their best work, he's breaking ground training individuals and teams in conscious leadership as the founder and president of 1560, helping leaders, teams, and organizations step into their power. Clay, we're so excited to have you as our guest today. Thanks so much for making time for this. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. What a great intro. Thanks, Nancy, and hello to you, Matt, as well. Even though some of these answers, we're gonna, we're gonna review some information here. Can you talk to us a little bit about the vision behind 1560 and why you really feel so passionate about this. Yeah, I'd love to. So I feel passionate about what 1560 does and is because uh, I needed 1560 in my own life. My gosh, for most of my life, meaning I spent, I don't know, the first three quarters of my life seemingly being successful in my career, like really cool gigs, doing some really interesting work. And if I got really honest with myself, I was stressed and I was uh, just exhausted and uh, a little bit empty inside. And it's funny, it's, you know, as a profession, I would tell people that my full-time job was um, to help clients innovate, to come up with new ideas and evolve their business models, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, what was really true is that I was sort of committed uh, in a full-time job to pleasing everyone around me. That's what I was really up to in my life. And so in my journey, I found uh, a number of things. One of them was uh, this practice called conscious leadership, which is a practice to begin to wake up and see what's driving our behaviors. And it didn't occur to me that everything I was doing underneath all of my decisions and behaviors, there was this fear around losing approval, fear around um, losing disconnection from my bosses, my clients, my, you know, all the people around me. Anyway, and so I found this thing called conscious leadership. And when I did, and when I started to see how it really um, could create benefits in my own life and really has ultimately transformed my life, it's all I want to do for a living is to help people begin to wake up and see themselves in a new light. And so 1560, that's what we do. I left Salesforce just over a year ago to start 1560 for two reasons. One, I want to help people wake up in their lives and get the benefits from this thing called conscious leadership that I've received in my own life. And two, I want to work with my best friends. Most of them are coaches and just as passionate about this stuff as I am. And so that's kind of what I'm up to. And uh, that's what 1560 is all about. Awesome. I love that. I love that explanation of, of just you kind of going on this personal journey and figuring out, well, what I want to do is actually what I need myself. Um, I think, you know, a lot, a lot of us can relate to that, right? In our own lives of trying to figure out where we're headed in our own journey and knowing that it's not going to be a linear path, even though, um, you know, everyone and everywhere kind of makes it seem that way. So that's really interesting. Um, to the point of conscious leadership, uh, what specifically is conscious leadership in your mind? Um, and then is it, is it something that you created or is it a framework that you modified? How did you start to build out this conscious leadership piece and, and what does that mean to you? Yeah, so I did not create conscious leadership and I, I learned sort of the fundamentals. I began practicing conscious leadership through a, another firm called the Conscious Leadership Group. The two founders of that group are Jim Duthmer and, and Diana Chapman, and they uh, co-authored a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. And they are brilliant, brilliant people. And I've learned uh, a ton about uh, conscious leadership through their teaching, their practices. I've been a participant long before I was a coach teaching this stuff. I was 
sort of uh, yeah, practicing underneath them and then learning to become a coach through them as well, learning to be a conscious leadership coach. So to give you a little background as to what conscious leadership is, it's kind of a funny thing, consciousness. Like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that there's people kind of laying on the street unconscious? It doesn't mean that. It means that um, fundamentally human beings biologically, neurologically, we're designed to stay alive. We're designed to, to perpetuate our species. And so through years and years of evolution, our brain has been developed to put us into this reactive state unconsciously whenever we sense there's some type of threat in front of us. Now, the obvious threats that we come across um, are threats to, to our physical survival. So if we're on the street and a car is approaching us at a, at a rapid speed or pace, before we think about it, we jump out of the way. But the, while our brain is amazing at doing that for us and helping us stay alive physically, our brain is really bad at distinguishing between threats to our physical survival from threats to our ego. And that's where things get sticky for most of us and where drama shows up in all of our lives, where we're acting without thinking because we're sensing that there's some threats to our ego. And when I say ego, there's really three things our brain is generally looking out for a threat to our security meaning our financial security um i can have a roof over my head food on the table can i support myself my family etc second thing is approval and boom just like that oh no my computer is is getting in the way of me presenting so whammo we can get into this reactive state where we begin thinking oh no am i enough people going to think I'm capable, smart, funny, whatever it is that we want. And the third thing is control. As soon as we sense we don't have control, uh, we get into that reactive state. Anyway, so the idea of conscious leadership is we react when any of those three things, our brain is believing they're threatened in some way, and then we start blaming others, or we start being defensive, or we check out, we start engaging in all these behaviors that generally lead us to outcomes that we're not wanting. Right. So the idea of conscious leadership, it trains us, it helps us begin to stop and notice that reactive automatic tendency before we get into trouble, before we make poor decisions, before we pick fights, before we check out or numb out or do any of the things that we so naturally do. I think that's a great explanation. I'm sort of wondering how you decided um... On, I, I was taking a look at your website and how you sort of decided on the coaching products, if you will, um, how those were the best ways to to help bring conscious leadership to people. Did you have sort of an iteration process for that? And just so I'm clear about your question, when you talk about coaching products, are you talking about just the different ways that 1560 delivers coaching? Yeah, I, I apologize if that's sort of like a poor verbalization of what you do, but like the team coaching versus executive yeah, yeah. in the leadership circles, kind of the, the differences between them and why you think yeah. that's a good way to divide it. Absolutely. I just wanted to make sure I was answering your question. So, right. So we deliver coaching in different ways. And I think there's different benefits to the different delivery vehicles per se. I mean, so there's executive coaching, which I imagine most people are familiar with. It's one-on-one -on -one coaching where we show up for a client and help them process and help them wake up to how they're creating the results that they're struggling with. Everything we do is around this idea of waking up and seeing ourselves in a light that maybe we haven't been able to see ourselves. So that's one-on-one -on -one coaching. Then we have these leadership circles, which is probably my favorite format of coaching. And leadership circles, uh, you bring together 10 people that aren't on a team, maybe they don't even know each other um, before they join the circle. And uh, these 10 people commit to coming together once a month for a set amount of time. It could be a two-hour session, a four-hour session, depending uh, on the nature of the circle. And you all learn and practice together. And this is where I really began to embrace conscious leadership myself, being a part of a circle with the conscious leadership group. And the amazing part about it is it's just this everyone's committed to just being vulnerable to exploring their own lives in community with other people. And so it's just beautiful. It creates this uh, amazing intimacy and connection. And so many of the people that I've been in these circles with are just my dearest friends now, because we know everything about each other and we've 
uh, helped each other kind of evolve and move through some of the patterns that have uh, kind of you know, limited our happiness and success in life. So that's leadership circles. Then we do team coaching. And what team coaching is, is uh, we will come into an organization and work with a real team, an intact team. Could be you know a particular client team or it could be a startup team or any kind of team where people are actively collaborating and working together on a regular basis. And we help them see you know, what's in the way of this team really maximizing its potential or what, or, or the other side of that, what is there to celebrate that we're not celebrating, that you're not celebrating? Like we help the team see itself in a way that they probably haven't been able to because most organizations, whether it's a startup or a big enterprise, it's like we show up at work and we're just going. We go and we go and we go and, we, and rarely do teams stop for a minute and pause the content of the work to explore the context in which they're working. Meaning it's not natural in most organizations that I've ever visited for people to say, wait a minute, how are we being together as a team? Let's just talk about what it's like to be on this team right now. And that can be incredibly powerful. And that's the basis of the program I built for Salesforce. And now any of the innovation teams across the globe within Salesforce, part of their group called Ignite, they have these regular team coaching sessions to explore how they're being together as a team. And that chops out so much unnecessary drama and spin and allows the team to really feel connected and do great work together. So that's the third vehicle. So we've got one-on-one -on -one coaching, we've got leadership circles, we've got team coaching. Uh, those are the big ones. And then of course, we've got workshops and seminars. I love running workshops on various topics and those can just be you know, informational. I usually like to get into conversation and have them be an experiential session. And we host those within organizations as well as um, just for the public. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. I mean, that's a great overview of kind of the work that you've put in place and the work you're doing. And I love the idea that you were doing this already within Salesforce for a giant organization. You could kind of field test it and test it out before taking it on your own. Andrew has a question uh, that I'm going to just read aloud here uh, about about coaching circles or, or um, team circles, right? So Andrew was asked to be a part of one. It wasn't clear to him how vulnerable he'd have to be. How do you help people in the circles get to a point where they're not hesitant about being vulnerable? Because that's certainly an issue. Um, and then a follow-up question is like, how do you figure out your pricing for these services? Um, and how has that evolved over time? Cool questions. Well, anytime you ever enter into anything I do or anything 1560 does, uh, we always tell people, take a chance, lean into some vulnerability. And I never want anyone to jump off a high dive that they're not wanting to jump off of. That's not friendly for you. It doesn't help me in any way. It doesn't help anyone else anyway. So how much vulnerability is required? I, what a cool question. I don't know if I have a specific, like, I don't know how to rate that from a one to 10. Maybe I can think about that. Um, but I will tell you that the circles really aren't for everyone. I mean, the, the premise of the circle is to come together and to kind of get real with one another. But the neat thing about it is, well, I'll, I'll first tell you, no one's comfortable doing that. Like, it's unnatural just to show up with a bunch of strangers and be vulnerable. Like, that's scary. And in fact, what I was saying before, security, approval, and control. These approval is generally why we don't get vulnerable in front of people because we're fearful of losing approval. We're fearful of people judging us. So it makes sense to me why someone would be like, wait a minute, I don't know if I want to do that. That's a, one of the three big threats in being a human being. But we create space and we ask questions like, well, what would support you to be vulnerable here? Are there any ground rules we should set up? And I think one of the things that I love doing is just creating space by modeling vulnerability, by coming out and just saying what it's really like to be me. And generally, in my experience, people that are a little hesitant to be vulnerable in these kinds of settings, it's like you dip your toes in, see how that feels, get some feedback. And then uh, you see other people dipping their toes in. And then the more you do it, uh, the more it actually becomes enlivening and empowering and sort of liberating to say, wow, I can just be allow myself to be seen and I'm still here. And in fact, allowing myself to, to be seen is creating the connection 
that I so often don't see in my life, probably because I'm unwilling to be vulnerable at, you know, at a certain extent. So there's the, uh, I don't know, there's an answer around vulnerability. Pricing is, man, that's an ever evolving topic. Uh, I still haven't figured that out. I, you know, so I'm, co I'm constantly in this dance of you know, what's the value to waking up in life? And so uh, I don't know if I have a really good answer as to how I price it, other than I do what any business does. I look around and I see, well, what are other people charging that are offering similar services or uh, relatable services? And I just check in with myself around, does this feel good to me? Like even energetically, if I charge whatever I charge an hour or per circle, like, does this feel good to me? And I usually rely on that. And then I have the price. And part of conscious leadership also is not being held to being right about anything and to kind of shift this mindset from scarcity, which we all are in most of the time, to this idea of abundance. So the topic of how much do I price our programs, that can be a practice in and of itself where I just kind of check in if someone wants Coaching for a certain price, I'll just kind of sit with that and see, is that enough? You know? Um, anyway, so if there's a more specific question about pricing, I'd be happy to um, offer more detail. I actually like that you answered that sort of as a philosophy question um, and, and kind of took it as an example of how you use conscious leadership to guide you. I mean, Trust me that I, we all have, um, you know, concrete bills that we need to pay. So we do need concrete numbers to charge people, but, um, I, I can understand, I, I think I really respect where you're coming from as far as using, um, the, the premise that, you know, you're not necessarily going to get it right the first time and that it should be an evolution, um, and a growth. And, and that's sort of, I, I think when I had asked you about your different coaching products, I think I was picturing that you have different services and you can find something to fit every price point, which I think is kind of neat. So, um, well, you can think about that and elaborate on it if you want. But um, I'm going to actually pass over to Spencer to ask his question. Hello. Thank you for coming on today. I'm already greatly enjoying what, what, hearing you talk. Um, one thing I wanted to ask was if you see common sort of types of leaders that need to develop different skills, so coming, maybe coming from different backgrounds or things like that, or do you think everyone generally has the same sort of set of things they need to work on? Well, one thing I will say, we're all human beings and we're all, we're all, uh, we have the same core threat. So the security control and approval model that I've already talked about that runs through all of us regardless of the type of leader that you are and we each have different personalities and we show up differently some leaders are you know very aggressive and it's my way or the highway and they're kind of commanding and others are more laid back and um you know leaders eat last they kind of take that mentality and kind of let everyone do their thing and there's other types of you know, there's all different kinds of leaders. There are some typical behaviors that generally show up when we're in a threatened state, and those can vary too, depending on personality. Um, and I'm happy to go into some specific around general types of behaviors that are unhealthy that most leaders engage in. But I kind of see, uh, I see lots of variance in just personality type. A lot of, uh, in the conscious leadership community, um, most of us, enjoy playing with the Enneagram personality diagnostic. I don't even know if it's a personality diagnostic, but basically if you're familiar with the Enneagram, it states that there are nine general types of well, personalities. Most of us can relate to one of those types. And each of those has opportunities to focus in on particular areas for our own individual growth, as well as uh, each of our types highlights areas where we get into trouble, where we create some drama in our life. And so my first answer is how many types of leaders are there, different types? I mean, I've seen leaders really in all of those different Enneagram types. Um, yeah. Spencer, is that, uh, is that answering your question? That's a perfect answer. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Spencer, so much. Um, 
play. Thanks for the amazing answer. Uh, Andrew had a follow-up question and, and something that's you know kind of interesting as well. Um, what has the impact of this been, right? So how does this help shift culture of companies? Um, and, and do you ever see it you know, for better or for worse, right? So, so how has this work kind of helped to shift some companies if you have examples in, in different directions? Yeah, sure. Um, it absolutely can shift culture. And it can also become a problem. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about both. There's some watch outs if you're going to begin embracing conscious leadership. Let me talk a little bit about the upside and the gains that a lot of companies have. There's one practice within this uh, idea of conscious leadership is creating and maintaining impeccable agreements. And what I mean by that is, you know, I've had the opportunity to be with lots of different teams, lots of different organizations. And the thing that I see get in the way and cause more problems or more trouble than anything is uh, what I would refer to as sloppy agreements. And what I mean by sloppy agreements is so often people say yes, things when they don't really mean yes. Meaning, again, it's a fear-based response. If I were to say no, what would people think of me? They wouldn't think I'm a team player, that I wouldn't get my promotion, I wouldn't get my raise, or danger, danger, danger. So I'm going to say yes. And then generally what happens when we say yes to things that we really don't mean yes to, uh, we overwork ourselves, we get burnt out. Take a look around the world. We have higher burnout and anxiety and depression rates than our country, than our country, our world has ever seen. Oftentimes, because most of us are in this kind of fear-based place currently, and so, so that's a sloppy agreement that I see all the time. There's lots of other ways in which um, people aren't in what I would, I guess, I would call in their own energetic integrity, meaning or energetic wholeness. Like we are not being kind to ourselves with the decisions we're making. And so there's this practice called um, making, uh, creating and maintaining impeccable agreements where before decisions are made, people get together and negotiate and they all check in and say like, yeah, so I know that you're wanting me to, you know, get these design mock-ups, you know, to you by five o'clock Thursday. Like, yeah, you know, there's some tension here with everything I've got on my plate. I don't want to say yes to that right now. Can we negotiate that to be Monday at two or whatever it is? So helping people stop and negotiate to an agreement that feels friendly, it prevents burnout. It prevents resentment of each other. Because generally when I say yes to something, when I don't mean yes, not only do I exhaust myself, but I usually end up resenting the other person in the agreement. That's just a natural behavior. When people begin embracing these practices, they start making better decisions, which eliminates the exhaustion. It eliminates the resentment and some of the interpersonal conflict that we see. Uh, and it just sucks all of the tension out of the air. Like imagine if we were on a team, where people were talking in a way where each person was saying what they loved to do and what they didn't love to do. And you set agreements accordingly. So I've seen that transform teams and organizations. And I can go into lots more detail about how creating those agreements, renegotiating and cleaning up broken agreements, how all that works in organizations. Happy to do that. Now, here's uh, the second part of your question was something around how this could actually create problems for organizations. It can. So uh, some organizations, I don't, yeah, I, I've seen clients weaponize conscious leadership. Here's what that means. So fundamental to this practice is you looking into you. It's me beginning to take responsibility for my reactive behavior. First, creating awareness around it. Like, oh my gosh, I just picked a fight with you. I apologize. It's because there was a part of me that was scared of losing your approval or whatever it is. So it's me looking into me, noticing how I'm reacting, where that reaction's coming from, and taking responsibility for the impact of the outcomes. And we use this model and where uh, I, you know, we say that at any point, in any moment, we're either above the line or below the line. If I'm above the line, I'm in an useful state. If I'm below the line, I am in a, that in that reactive, threatened state. And so sometimes after I introduce these models, it doesn't happen a lot. And actually, I've heard it a lot with other organizations maybe that I haven't been a part of. But I like to make a point of this. Don't start pointing fingers at everyone around you saying, you're below the line, you're below the line, you're below the line. 
people can start taking the theory and using it as a weapon to point out someone else's flaws. That's not helpful. <laughs> and all it, all it means is when you're seeing someone else below the line or in a reactive state, all that means is there's something going on here in you that's seeing them that way. And so I ask people to turn the finger around, point at themselves and say, what is it about that person that's firing you up here? What's the threat going on here that is being triggered by seeing that person doing whatever it is that they're doing? So they're just some ground rules. After I introduce this to organizations and individuals, I like to have a very clear conversation about this, how to use the tools. It's like any tool. I mean, you know, you can pick up a hammer and, you know, I don't know, hammer nails appropriately, but you can also pick up a hammer and break a window. Uh, that's probably not very helpful unless you're wanting to break a window. Um, so like any tool, there's appropriate ways to use this stuff in ways that uh, I don't recommend. But that's a great analogy. <laughs> yeah, you're sort of describing to me like um, uh, family therapy for work groups. And, and that can go beautifully or dangerously. So I, I love your analogy. And um, uh, Spencer said, sloppy agreements, that's a perfect term. I've been thinking of this concept in my own life a lot. Is it? I agree. That's a great verbalization. We all do it. We all get into these sloppy agreements, not because we're bad people, but because we're just naturally trying to preserve connection with the people around us and not let them down in some way. I think that makes a lot of sense. So I was wondering, just kind of taking a leap into, um, you know, you personally, what inspired your venture into entrepreneurship after working for all these amazing companies? Was there anything you would look at and see as like a catalyst or jumping off moment? Sure. Yeah. I mean, as long as I can remember, uh, I've always wanted to run my own company. Yeah. I've always just wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like, you know, I went to business school ages ago and um, I was a marketing major and an entrepreneurship major. Uh, I've always been fascinated by it. Ages ago, I worked for a small business and worked for my good friend who was running the company. And I just loved um, just having the autonomy, having the ability to just do what you want to do. I mean, you know what I mean? In, in the in the context of entrepreneurship. And so, yeah, I just was excited. I mean, coaching can be funny too. Being an internal coach, I went below the line a lot as an internal coach, I got reactive a lot working for Salesforce in times because I would see dysfunction happening at the levels above me. So basically my boss or my boss's boss. And so it's a little funny to be a coach. Uh, you can't, you know, it even can be a little bit potentially unethical or scary to coach your boss. It's just a conflict of interest. Um, and so I just, I just wanted to, and there were certain programs that I wanted to invest in more. And I just wanted to kind of, you know, my personality type is I love to control and I can get myself into trouble around it sometimes, but I just want to create what I want to create. And so uh, just having my own business just has allowed me to work with the people I want to work with, work exactly with the type of clients that I want to work with and just begin to create a life exactly as I want it for myself. And, uh, you know, that's, I'm having a good time and I'm learning a ton about what it really means to be an entrepreneur, which is uh, all kinds of learning about myself and about this thing called entrepreneurship right now. That's great. And very well said. I think that, you know, most of the people here can relate to that having some sort of, um, you know, want or desire to start something of their own or be entrepreneurs, uh, whether they're currently just in the beginning stages of a startup or, looking to exit a startup and onto their next venture. I think that's kind of one of the things that, that pulls everybody together here. So I really love this idea of like, you just wanted to kind of create an environment that you wanted for yourself, right? While helping others through conscious leadership. Uh, so I think that's a great, uh, great way to take a look at it. Um, what, you know, and I guess, um, I guess uh, kind of building on that a little bit, as you were getting into, you know, this idea of, okay, I'm going to start something on my own, right? So um, what was that decision point, right? At what point were you sitting at Salesforce, for example, um, trying to figure out what to do next? Where, where was that? Where was that idea that was like, yes, now's the right time? How did you know it was the right time? 
So this has been on my mind for a long time to start this company. And you know, Salesforce was a, I mean, it's an incredible company. And basically they, they said to me four or five years ago, or I ran this program for four years. They just said, go do the thing. So I had a bunch of autonomy. It was not a bad thing that I was sitting in. It was an incredible opportunity. Um, so it wasn't like I was dying to get out of there. And, you know, working for a big company, they pay well. It's like you get the golden handcuffs, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just like easy work for a company like Salesforce. And I think the more I started to do my own work, I uh, the, actually Jim Duthmer, the guy that wrote that book I mentioned, he's been a mentor and a coach to me. And he, one of his favorite things to say that I love is, uh, what are you willing to risk for full aliveness? Which I think is such a, you know, a fun prompt for me to explore. What am I willing to risk to be fully alive? Meaning, you know, working for another company, you're saying yes to things that you'd probably rather, you know, you, know, you might want to be doing something different or there's constraints or there are, you know, I just have to answer the call. I'm not making the call per se. And I can go a little bit below the line around that and feel like a victim, which is a key behavior that we all sort of step into where we feel disempowered. There was probably more opportunity at Salesforce for me to be a creator where I was being a little bit more candid with the people around me about what I wanted in my role. But I just, um, it came to a point where I just was more and more excited and I had more and more of a vision of what this thing could be on my own. And there's this really cool, there's this woman, Kathleen Dannemiller, and she created this um, formula. It's called uh, the formula for change. And what she says is change, like moving from like leaving your job and starting your own company or any kind of change really generally happens with some key ingredients. The first is you have to be really dissatisfied. Second thing is you have to have a vision for what you want to do differently. And the third thing is you need to know a first step on how to get started. And so when you're dissatisfied, you've got a great vision and you're clear on how to get a first, uh, how to start moving forward with a first step. When all of that outweighs the fear of change, then change naturally occurs. So through my evolution, I knew a long time ago I wanted to start a business, and I just started to have a clearer and clearer vision of what 1560 could be. I started to do some research, and I got clearer and clearer on first steps. And the more excited I got around that, and the less I knew that I wanted to play part within Salesforce, my dissatisfaction grew. And then finally, all of that outweighed the fear of leaving. And there was fear in leaving, like... All of a sudden, I don't have a paycheck. So that was always here. You know, what happens if this doesn't go well? What happens? You know, I've got a mortgage. I've got a family to support. I've got all these things. So there's clearly fear. But the dissatisfaction was up. The vision was clear. First steps were clear. And at that point, the real tipping point was there was a reorg. So all of a sudden, there was a new, basically, a new structure within the group I was in, new management. And I just didn't want to have to go through that basically i didn't want to have to i don't know establish a I just didn't want to have to reinvent with a new structure i'm like i'm going to go reinvent for myself within 1560 uh, and so i just i just went for it i like your honesty in that answer you know i, I don't know that it's always um there's like a magic moment but it, but i did write down um the thing you had quoted i apologize i don't remember the individual that first said it but what am i what am i willing to risk for my full aliveness yeah for me it's like am i willing to risk letting go of the golden handcuffs am i willing to risk the comfort and luxury of being an employee of a very secure you know high profile company for the potential of really waking up every day and being able to create the way i want to create that was the question for me. What am, am I willing to risk that? And at some point, it got to the point where I was. And so I made the leap. And, and so it's just a fun question I think anyone can ask themselves when they're pondering creating some change in their lives. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Because, I mean, there's definitely, there are pros and cons to it. As you said, sort of the, you know, the stability aspect, but I, I think that many of us have experienced that. Um, I would not say stability is an illusion, but stability can be more easily upset than sometimes we realize. Um, so kind of building off of that, I was wondering how you find sort of that work-life balance for yourself at this point. What does that look like for you? Uh, yeah, so that's a work in progress. I'm a human being as well. And so generally what I'm doing is I'm just doing my best to listen to myself. Like most of us make decisions in our heads. I've been amazing at making decisions in my heads. And most of us just aren't in tune with our bodies. And our bodies have so much wisdom. So sometimes you, you might be able to relate with this, like you're either you're finding yourself procrastinating or not doing something that you know you need to be doing. Or you can, when you're sitting down to do something, you can just feel this like grossness in your body or this tension in your body. And so my practice this past couple of years especially with 1560 is listening to that and letting that navigate my decision-making. So I'm noticing, gosh, I just keep pushing this thing off or um, I just, it feels gross. It's an energy leak for me to do this thing. I just pay attention to that. And I'll make decisions like, you know, I'm not sure that's the road I want to go to. And I thought it was, but doing this work, like if I'm creating a new type of program or uh, like I have all kinds of ideas about ways in which 1560 can grow and I'll start playing with one of them. And I'll be like, ooh, that just doesn't feel good to me. And so I'll stop, learn from that and then shift course. And so for work-life balance, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, even yesterday, yesterday was Friday and uh, well, my family all came down with COVID yesterday also, but I had meetings scheduled all day. And I, and I had to help my family isolate and quarantine and it was a whole, it was quite a day. But I did have a bunch of meetings scheduled in the afternoon and I could have made those meetings. And I just had to listen. Like I looked ahead to the afternoon and I'm like, I don't have a yes to having that meeting anymore that I was excited about having three days ago. I listened to that. I reached out to that person and didn't, didn't bullshit them. I said like, Hey, I, you know, my want right now is to reschedule to that, to, to next week. This is that impeccable agreements thing. Are you open to renegotiating an agreement? We were going to talk today at three. I'm not a yes to that anymore. Uh, I've got other things that showed up unexpectedly. I just want to clear my calendar where a lot of times people just they don't pick up on that, or at least I didn't pick up on those cues. And you just jam your way through life. Um, and you do things because you think you should do them, or you're scared of not letting other people down, or there's lots and lots of reasons. But more and more, I'm just kind of listening, like, you know, or, and it doesn't even mean like, it's not just when your family has COVID, but it could be a, a particular day. And it's like, it just doesn't feel friendly to do these things that I was planning on doing today. So I'm going to not do them. I'm going to renegotiate. Now that doesn't mean go and be sloppy with, you know, all the people around you. And well, I suppose you could, but uh, you can also see if you begin to lose trust with people, if you're making agreements with them. Um, but to answer your question, I'm just listening more and more and I'm trusting more and more to follow my energy, or my instincts around my day-to-day -day activities. And so far, so good. It's been a great run. I'm more and more interested in that kind of uh, way of being. It's, uh, no, it's interestingly put, and I love the way you, you phrase that and, and just kind of put that in practice, because uh, it can be very hard to do. I think we've all struggled a little bit with um, keeping commitments that we may have had, even though we don't want to break them or move them or shift them. Um, and, and it takes time you know, to go through that, right? It takes time, as you were saying, it seems like it takes a lot of time to be comfortable with doing that. Yeah, one thing I wanna add about this too, sometimes when I start talking about this, there's an important piece that I didn't mention. There is a cost to doing the things that you don't wanna do. Not only for yourself, but for the other person. Usually what happens is we don't wanna say no to the other person. Like I could have just kept the meetings yesterday 
And now what happens is if I'm doing that because I'm scared of losing their approval or whatever it might be, I show up to the meeting and now I'm not going to be in my best form. The quality or whatever it was I promised to create for that person or the conversation, it's going to be at me at 50%. So what's funny is most of us end up manifesting the very thing we're trying to avoid, meaning I don't want to lose that person's approval. So I'm going to do the thing that I said I was going to do. And I'm going to do it half as well as I might normally, which will result in me losing their approval. <laughs> this happens all the time. I see it all the time. It's hilarious. People say yes to things. They exhaust themselves. Don't do great work because who does great, who does great work when you're pissed off and not wanting to do it? And then you end up creating the very thing you're looking to avoid. Anyway, thought that was an important piece to add in. No, I'm glad you did because it's, it's kind of where I wanted to go with the, with the next question here is, is when you get into those situations, um, because it happens to everybody. We all we can all make commitments or take on projects that we get into part, part of the way and go, well, this isn't really what I wanted to do or it wasn't what I thought I was doing or taking much longer than I had planned. How do you navigate that? How do you work through that? On how to shift course, you mean? Yeah, like from from a state of like a conscious leadership, how do you, because it sounds like it, it does happen, right? And we all we all get into that. Um, so how do you go about shifting? And changing? Yeah, so the first part is getting really clear before you say yes. That's the first part. Like, and it, you know, it's so funny. So many books and things are like, so many philosophies are like, say yes to everything. Like, I'm going to take a year of saying yes. And I think there is great value in that. And I'm not, maybe I am poking a little bit of fun at some of those things. But there's also the flip side to that that I think is really cool. What if you were to start every decision with a no? I don't necessarily need to tell the other person, but I'm going to start with a no until I really feel like I'm a yes. This is an internal process you can go through. Like I'm going to start everything from a mindset of no. And then like when I hear about it, it's like when I check in with myself, like, yeah, I want to do that. I'm now a yes. So first get really clear that in when entering into the agreements that you're entering into that you really want to do these things. Second thing is continue to notice. Like, wait a minute, something's changed. There's been a shift in the force. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, something else showed up in my life that is unexpected. Now, am I willing to be candid and open with the other person I was involved in? In my experience, you know, again, people are scared to renegotiate or to say no. But I think it's actually a way to build trust. If I was to talk to someone I was in an agreement with, like, hey, I actually want to renegotiate that. Are you going to trust the person that candidly brings that up ahead of time? So there's room to like, not at the last minute, but as soon as you know that, wait a minute, I need to renegotiate that. Are you going to trust someone that's willing to be really candid with you or someone that doesn't tell you that and ends up just jamming through whatever the thing is and doesn't do great work. So for me, it's checking in, noticing what's here, being open and vulnerable and candid with the other person as a means to create connection. And I think when people are playing that game together, especially on a team where everyone's playing by those rules, it creates so much trust and so much connection. Uh, and then you renegotiate or then you create something that, that works better. Now that, you know, the one thing I don't want you to walk away with this thinking is that like every other moment you're changing your mind. I mean, I renegotiate one out of 10 things maybe or something like the idea is make good decisions up front and should something happen then you have the step of renegotiating um, it's not like people are like spinning tops and like dropping things left and right on teams and i don't want to do that anymore and you know it doesn't need to be like that like do what you say you're gonna do unless because you were really eyes wide open when you made the agreement up front I think um, the overall concept of what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. I, th I think um, the part that I'm sort of assuming is in the background is sort of a list of like qualifying reasons of why this is, you know, not a good fit for me or not a good fit for me anymore to commit to this thing or this task. You know, maybe, maybe now I have a kid and I, I can't just say yes 
to a lot of the things that I did before. Or maybe now I'm running a company and the demands of my time or are different or I I think it's um I, I think you're sort of leaving room to be human and many of us feel that we have to maintain this um superhero exterior to people. So maybe maybe just breaking down a little bit of that. But I, I do understand where people feel especially in a work group, really vulnerable because you feel expendable too. You feel replaceable. Um, and I think it's, a, it's hard to get behind that, um, you know, even if someone does replace you, if your heart was really in it, they're actually gonna wind up worse off and they're gonna regret it because they're gonna have to retrain someone not just with your skills, but they're going to have to somehow find someone with your passion. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, two points on that I want to make. One, usually practicing this creates connection, creates trust, and, cre and really solidifies a productive culture within a team. So it's terrifying for most people to step into this. That's why it's great if a group of people can step into it together. That's where some of the team coaching stuff shows up. Or even if you're an entrepreneur and you have a founder and you decide, hey, let's just start practicing this stuff together. Amazing. And by the way, I've got some simple worksheets on this. I'm after this call, happy to continue the conversation around how to implement this stuff with anyone. I'm happy to just send some of these worksheets and instructions on how to do it. There is a second point I want to make around this. Ah, if you decide, or you know, you brought up this idea of being expendable. So you know, some you're going to be replaced. Um, I mean, to me, that's like. I mean, it's certainly possible for anyone to be replaced, but the question I would then ask. Do you really want to be within a group that's wanting you to do work that you don't want to do? <laughs> I mean, the answer might be yes. Like, well, I get a paycheck, you know, and I get the security and that might be enough and great, go for it. But this kind of comes into that whole uh, idea of what am I willing to risk for my full aliveness? Like, I, I would actually look at that as, gosh, how might that be a gift that they're looking for someone else. I mean, it's, I always tell, you know, so whenever I start coaching people, I usually tell the leaders like, hey, there's a good chance that one of your employees, two of your employees, however many employees may decide that when they wake up and see what's really going on, that this isn't a good fit for them. I want you to be clear about that. Now, I think that's great for the individual. It's also great for the organization because as an organization, as a business leader, business owner, do you really want someone doing a job that they don't want to be doing because one, they're not going to do it nearly as well as someone that really was excited about it. Two, they're going to burn themselves out and have impact on the people around them. So should you get to that place, it's like, how can we support our individuals to find another role that would, that they're really excited about? Everyone wins. Soon as we start bullshitting ourselves and pretending that things aren't there, that's where the drama and dysfunction and low productivity starts. That's just where it all comes from. If we can all step into this idea of honesty and candor with some compassion, I think there's so much upside. And again, you know, some of this may sound easy. There's a lot of fear around it. So there is some work to be done to set up a team in a way to play this way. But if you're willing to take the leap, I think it is can be glorious on the other side and really affect just uh, quality of life. Well said. One more personal question here for you. Being a person of varied interests and talents, is there a problem you'd like to use your knowledge and passion to solve that you haven't delved into yet? Um, you know, whether that's like a company you dream of starting someday or an evolution of something you're doing now? Yeah. So part of being, an, you know, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've also always wanted to create product. I, 
I did a lot of product innovation when I was a consultant, um, but I want to create products for myself and for 1560. And uh, I just think it's so fun. And so I don't know what that is, but I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Could I create products that are in alignment with this general theme of 1516, helping people begin to wake up, whether that's card games or whether it's, I don't know what it could be. I'm starting to think about those things. The other side is if you were to really know me, the more you get to hang out with me, you know that I'm a pretty ridiculous guy. I love being a complete goof. And so creating hilarity is also really fun for me. I mean, it's kind of silly to say like, yeah, having fun is really fun for me. Um, but so create creating uh, things, products for people to drop the, you know, their bullshit and the, and the facade that we all put on to just be silly uh, that excites me too. I don't know what that looks like, but I imagine that's going to happen at some point. My energy, if I notice, I get really bubbly and excited about doing that. So there's something to be, uh, something to pay attention, pay attention to around that. That's awesome. I love to, I'm, I'm really glad that we get to learn that about you. That's really cool. Um, I know we're running close to time here. Do you have uh, 10, 15 minutes to answer a few more questions? Sure. Uh, well, you want to know what I do, but I'm going to renegotiate an agreement I have with a business partner of mine that I'm supposed to meet with in three minutes, but she would be excited for me to continue this conversation should anyone have questions. Perfect. Well, that's, that's you know, practical application. That's awesome. Sure. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so Andrew has another question kind of um, about about your process and theory. Uh, his question is, um, how do you kind of create opportunity for candor and honesty um, within within your um, teams, within your organization? Um, and then he says, not, pe not many people actually know how to negotiate or negotiate well, even at, at all, um, especially in different countries, right, as we're global. Um, so, so how do you kind of create that opportunity to start that? Yeah, so, um any individual wanting to create that shift within their team or in their organization, first question I generally like to ask is, who's the person you need to be to begin inviting others to show up the way you want them to show up? And what that means is, you know, are you willing to be the first one to jump in the pool? And usually, all it takes is one person to jump in the pool, especially if that person has influence, like a leader. And then others feel more comfortable. Oh, wait a minute. If that guy did it, then I can do it. Um, but there's, oh, I mean, this really isn't a shameless pitch, but, and it's not even about me or 1560, but having a conversation led by a third party, any third party to talk about how do we want to be together as a team? This can be really helpful. It doesn't need to be more than an hour long conversation. Like, what would it look like if we started to be more candid with one another and more vulnerable? What are some ground rules that could help us do that? Is this something we want to do? Maybe it isn't. I don't know. But just getting people's voices in, in, the, in the pot to have a conversation around what's possible for this team. What could it be like if we started to be more candid with one another? So there can be some guidance with a third-party facilitator or coach around that. Uh, and then the other thing is be the person you want others to be. Modeling this stuff, especially top down, is just really, really important. And that's kind of what I lead with. Most sessions I'm in, I usually get vulnerable and talk about something about myself that I'm scared about or, you know, again, I'm a human being just like everyone else. I think the difference in this conscious leadership stuff is it's not that all of a sudden people that practice this don't get scared or threatened in some way. It's just that we're more aware of those times. We're uh, quicker to shift out of it. But I still have the same, I mean, I, you know, I've got fear surging through my bones like everybody does. Um, but I can just, I know it's here and I can create some separation between me and it. And that's where the, the practice comes in. That's great. And um, adding on to that, Andrew said, not too many people know how to negotiate and renegotiate well, if even at all, especially in Asia. Oh. Right. I imagine some of this stuff, right? I mean, it is. I mean, um, each team has its culture, its own culture. Each country, each region of the world certainly has its own culture. And some cultures, uh, it may be easier to take a risk 
playing with some of the stuff than others. I totally, that makes good sense to me. Um, but it's scary for anyone. And um, I don't know, I think my, my recommendation probably stands, show up, be the first one in the pool uh, and see if it feels safe or not. Like you may want to do this, but the people that you're working with based on culture just aren't interested. And that's sort of, those are the cards on the table. So another part of conscious leadership is don't argue with reality. Like, well, if you're sitting with a bunch of people that don't want to play by a certain set of rules, don't force because all that's doing is creating tension, anxiety, and anger or whatever it is within yourself. So if I was coaching someone that was in a culture that didn't want to play by these rules, I just think that would be fun content to play with. Like, so what are the beliefs you're making up about everyone else? How are you creating the tension and stress yourself by interacting with those around you? So what's going, the answer is always what's going on in here. If we stop pointing our fingers at all the other people that don't want to play the way I want to play, What's the reaction I'm creating for myself here when I'm fighting with reality? So I really agree with that. I, um, I, I'm not the first person to suggest this by any means, but I agree that um, sometimes the, the best moments of our creative thinking come through times when we're limited. So you actually might find a better way to communicate with a group that already has this set of rules just by being a newcomer and thinking about it differently. And I like your pool analogy. I actually say something similar that has some of the same meaning, I guess, um, that you can be the first person to start the party. And if you keep it going, people will join you. But, but I think you do need someone to be brave and step into the pool first and see what the water temperature is. It always just takes one person. Yeah. Love it. All right. Well, um, kind of wrapping up today, we have a question that we like to ask. What do you think has been the best lesson or takeaway from your journey so far? This could be a few simple sort of words of wisdom someone else gave you, a favorite quote, um, maybe something that's helped you on your journey, whatever you like. Well, I've already said it a couple of times, but that it stays with me all the time. What are you willing to risk for full aliveness? Uh, that is with me all the time. A great question. Um, that's one of them. Oh, learnings. I don't know. That's the one that comes to mind. I'm going to trust that that's the one that is wanting to be known now. I mean, that's, that's a great, uh, great words to live by, um, obviously. And just as you navigate your journey, and I think we can all relate to that in some ways and, and use that in our own context. So Clay, thank you so much for being here. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, really enjoyed, um, you know, your thoughtfulness and your time today. Yeah, great. So um, I'm always happy to talk with people about this stuff, to explore. You know, it's just fun for me to have conversations like this. So awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for everything today. Uh, Clay, we really appreciate you coming on and giving your time to us to kind of walk us through this. And I think um, a lot of folks have probably uh, taken away some of this uh, as, as ways that they can implement pieces of what we discussed in their own lives and within their own teams, their own entrepreneurial journey. Um, so we also want to thank everyone else for being here today. Um, thanks for bringing perspective uh, today's discussion. Um, thanks for the great questions. Uh, so thanks so much for being part of the community. And uh, we would love to have you guys all join us again next week um, for our next discussion. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we invite you um, we invite you to nominate people to join in in this discussion in this community. Uh, and then if you'd like to support Founders Voyage uh, becoming a podcast, you can do that through our Patreon. Uh, so thank you again, everyone, for being here. It's a great discussion today. Um, and we'll, we'll talk with everyone next week. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Clay. Of course, Clay. Thank you, guys. Yeah, th thanks again, Clay. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, man. Great conversation. Bye.
You've just finished another episode of Founders Voyage, the podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. The team at Founders Voyage wants to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and if so, please share this with someone else who might enjoy this podcast. You can also support us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and by donating to our Patreon. Outro music today is Something for Nothing by Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band. We should just use our interview time to just talk about pickleball, Nancy. Uh-huh. can definitely do that. Maybe you can find a way to um, make an analogy involving pickleball. Oh, I bet you I could. Yeah. That's, that's a fun challenge.